Genesis chapter 46 is where we're going to begin this morning. Before we do so, let us run to our great God in prayer. And Father, we do, we run to you in prayer. We run to you, Lord. We don't run away from you, but we run to you, to our God, to our Savior, to our Father, to our hope, to our comfort, to our power. We run to you, Lord, because we know that we need you. We need your mind. We need your wisdom. We need your heart. We need your compassion. We need your patience. We need vision, Lord. We need clarity. We need discernment. We are in utter need of you in all things, in all relationships. So we praise you, Lord, that you're there, that you're here right now, that you dwell in us through faith in Jesus. Lord, this morning, as we continue to worship you, as we open up your word, we're asking that you'd enable us to hear you. Revelation, it says, those who have ears to hear, may we hear what the Spirit speaks to the churches. Lord, we have ears, and we're asking that you'd enable us to hear your voice, your will, your encouragement. Whatever each one of us needs individually, what we need as a body, Lord, we look to you in all these things. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, a couple of weeks ago, I had somebody come up to me and ask why um, the little flashing things during announcements say Hebrews, that Jesus is better, because we're not in Hebrews, we're in Genesis. But for those of you who know, what book are we really studying? We're studying Hebrews. Why? Jesus is better. So what we're doing in Genesis is we're examining faith in depth. Because in Hebrews 11, well, in Hebrews 10, at the end of Hebrews 10, uh, the writer of this letter to Hebrews quotes Habakkuk chapter 2. And the quote is that the just shall live by faith. And Paul quotes that in Romans, and he quotes that in Galatians. And then Hebrews 11 starts getting into a mini commentary of here's what faith is, and here's what faith looks like. So as we've been sitting in Genesis, we've been looking at other human beings' faith in God, their understanding of who he is, their interactions according to God's revelation to them, the processes of their life, their strengths, their weaknesses, everything that's going on is what we've been watching. A couple weeks ago, we, we sat in this test in Genesis 44 where Joseph is testing his brothers to see if these men have been reformed and repentant in their heart, if they're going to, you know, what have they done to his brother Benjamin. Once these brothers pass the test, and again, this incredible um, humility and sacrifice that we see in Judah in chapter 44, Joseph can't hold back anymore, and he reveals himself to his brothers. I am Joseph, he says there in chapter 45. And again, this is a run-up to where we're getting this morning. But he said here, I am Joseph. This is 45, uh, verse 4. It says, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. But now, therefore, do not be grieved or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. And verse 7 says, God sent me before you to preserve a posterity for you in the earth to save your lives by a great deliverance. So now it was not you who sent me here, but God. This is uh, Joseph's life and as he sat in his trials, as he sat in his God giving him visions for the future. Those visions not lining up with his current life. We're told in Psalm 105 that the word of God tested him while he was being hurt, while he was chained as a slave. God's word was testing him. We've already sat in this information and talked about it. But here, it's again, it's not your actions towards me that have ultimate control over my life. And this is what Joseph is saying to his brothers. You did sell me. And your hand did have a part in bringing me here. But ultimately, and I love these statements in the work because it's always but God. 
Here's what God is doing. Here's what God did. Here's what he's doing for the future. So you may have hurt me. But God's revealed to me that he is the one who has brought me here. And he didn't bring me here to, to punish you. He didn't bring me here to cause me to suffer. He brought me here to save your life and to save my life because here's this famine that's coming. Now he gives instruction to go to the brothers and to bring dad back. And at the, in the end of chapter 45, we are watching at the, at the revelation to Jacob that his son Joseph is alive. It's a picture of resurrection. He just has his son back from the death. And it says there that Jacob revived. He came alive. And now Jacob is turning his attention to going to where his son is. And this is where we pick up the story in chapter 46. We're going to read the first four verses here. It says, So Israel took his journey with all that he had, and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. Then God spoke to Israel in the visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. So he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not fear to go down to Egypt for I will make of you a great nation there. I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also surely bring you up again. And Joseph will put his hand on your eyes. And this is what's going on in, in Jacob's life. He's a hundred, I think, he, what is he going to say? He's 130 years old. Uh, we're going to see in a minute. So he's had 130 years of history. And the last 60 years of that history, so the first 70 years of his life, Jacob was living his life for himself. And as he left this location here, Beersheba, where he's having this encounter with God, when he leaves Beersheba, we're told earlier, this is when he's running away from his brother, he's running away from his father, he's running away from the damage that he caused, he's, he's fleeing. And there in Bethel, God meets him. And he didn't know that God was there before he went to bed. But in the visions in the night, he has this dream. God reveals himself, who he is. I am the God of your father. And Jacob makes this commitment to God. If you will bring me back, if you're going to do all the promises that you've just given to me, if you will be who you say that you are, then you will be my God. If you bring me back to the land in safety. And then Jacob, we watch all this process that we've sat in his life and watch God transform him. That when he comes back into the land and meets with Esau, this incredible reconciliation that occurs. But since Jacob has been in the land for the last 20 plus years, he's had nothing but trouble. And the biggest trouble that he sat in was the death of his favorite son, Joseph. And that's led to bitterness in his life. It's led to holding on to the other sons and trying to control his life. Again, the subject matter that we've sat in. But here, as God, the God of his father Isaac, the God that revealed himself to his grandfather Abraham, gave Abraham promises. His father is a promise, a miraculous promise of God, Isaac himself. And as God has revealed himself to Jacob, God has been with Jacob in all these different occurrences where God is showing up, encouraging him, speaking truth to him. He, he showed up to him when he was there with Laban to go back into the land. All of God's promises, much of his promises are associated with the land of Israel. And now here... He is at the, at the prospect of stepping out of the land that God told him to go back to. And he doesn't want to be in disobedience. So here he's coming to Beersheba and he's worshiping God. He's in prayer. He's offering this sacrifice on an altar that his dad built. But it says here, when God shows up and when God speaks to him, what does he tell him? Not to fear. Don't be afraid. And this is, this is the reality of our lives and our context and the reality of the prayer that I've been praying this morning. Because here, as, as Jacob is praying 
He is offering sacrifices to God. He is looking for, to God for discernment and direction. He is, he is longing to see his son alive. But he also recognizes the, the conflict that that has with a command of God to be in the land from him. So as he's contemplating leaving and going to his son, he needs to hear from God. And God speaks to him. And again, this says it's in the visions of the night. This isn't a dream. This is, this is something where God is showing up in his mind, in God's voice. He is speaking his name, Jacob, Jacob. Um, I asked some people this morning, and this is what we've been praying this morning. I know that there are many in this room. Um, I have heard God speak my name. And it's not one of those things that's audibly like this. It's not something that happens all the time. I can think of two occasions in my life where I have been woken up to the call of my name. I've heard God's voice. I hear God's voice weekly and daily through his spirit. I hear his voice through his word. I hear his voice through you as my brothers and sisters as I'm praying and I'm looking to him for wisdom and discernment in these circumstances. But this is our genuine prayer for you that you would hear the voice of the God who created you. And this is how God reveals himself to Jacob. I am the God. Not I am Elohim, but I am the El. I am the God. I am the God of your father, Isaac. I'm the one that created your dad miraculously. I'm the one that you encountered in Bethel. I'm the one that you encountered in Syria. I'm the one that you've encountered when you came back into the land. I am your God. I am with you. I have always been with you. I will always be with you. And that is the knowledge. When you know that God knows your name, when you know that the God that created the heavens and the earth knows you and that he loves you and that he's in control of your life, that he's with you, what happens to fear? The song that we just sang, Tremble. We sang this over and over again. Jesus, Jesus, you make the darkness tremble. Are you afraid of the dark? Darkness in your own soul, darkness in the world, the darkness of the unknown, those things that make you tremble, those things that suck courage out of your mind and your heart and your life, the name of Jesus makes that darkness tremble. Jesus, Jesus, you silence fear. And this is what, this is what Jacob's encounter with God is doing. God knows that his son is afraid. God knows that his son needs wisdom and discernment. So therefore, God shows up in the moment that he needs to communicate to Jacob exactly what he needs to hear in the moment that he needs to hear it. God is here. God is with me. God is directing me. And if you're not assured of that, that's what this constant prayer has been for you this morning. It's what we pray all the time, that you would know the God who loves you, that you would know the God who has saved you, and that you would intentionally, with the purpose in your heart, that you would pursue following him day in and day out. Because he's there, but fear comes into our lives. The unknown comes into our lives. Things, things come across our path that seem contrary to the last instruction that God gave to us. And for Jacob, the instruction was to be in the land. And now he has a life circumstance that seems to be in contrast to what God's command for him is. And God shows up and again is affirming, I am the one who is leading you in this direction. And those words of Joseph become true. God is the one who sent me here to preserve my dad's life, to preserve my brother's life, to preserve their wives and their kids, to preserve this whole household. I will go with you. And this is the thing. In this life, God is with us. But have no doubt that God will surely bring us into his presence for all eternity. We're going to come back to this. Joseph's going to put your hand on your eyes comment in a minute. Verse 5, it says, Then Jacob arose from Beersheba, and the sons of Israel carried their father Jacob, their little ones, and their wives. 
in the carts which Pharaoh had sent to carry him. So they took their livestock and their goods, which they had acquired in the land of Canaan and went to Egypt, Jacob and all his descendants with him, his sons and his sons' sons, his daughters and his sons' daughters, and all his descendants he brought with him to Egypt." Now the comment, the, the Bible here steps into a genealogy of Jacob and all those who go down into Egypt. We're not going to go through that verse by verse. You can thank me for that later. Um, but this is, this is what is going on. In the beginning of chapter 46, it's using the, the God-given name of Jacob, which is Israel. Often when, when, when the title Israel is being used for Jacob, it's a national context or it's just that special relationship context between God and Jacob. And then there's often, when God calls Israel's name, what does he call in the dream? He says, Jacob, Jacob. Often people want to say, well, God uses the old name, Jacob, when Jacob is being the old Jacob, the hill snatcher, the supplanter, the conniver, the deceiver. And that's not always true in the context. But here, what's going on in this context, in this passage, it's a national idea. When the name of Israel is being named, it's the father, Israel, his 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel, their families. And this is the context. So God had told Abraham earlier on in chapter 15, if you remember that far back, that his descendants were going to dwell in a land. They were going to be strangers in a land that was not theirs and they would serve them and they would afflict them 400 years. So what's going on is... The nation, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, here's Israel, and all of Israel's children, they're going into Egypt. This is where the fulfillment of this is just initiating. So this is a national context. So when it's saying that Jake, Israel is taking all that he had, it says that all his descendants, uh, the focus is on all of them are going to Egypt. And we're going to sit in this context here in a minute of why this is so important. He uses the number at the uh, verse 26, all the persons who went with Jacob to Egypt who came from his body, literally from his thigh, that same part, that same word that God touched when he was wrestling with God. Besides Jacob's sons' wives were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two persons. All the persons of the house of Jacob who went to Egypt were 70. This, this round number, this perfect number, this symbolic number of totality. The whole nation is going. And I'm bringing this up because in Acts chapter 7, if you know, remember the, the message that Stephen is giving before stones are hurled at his head, he says that 75 people go. So is there a conflict in the Bible? No, it's just how you number the different names. But Stephen would have been reading the Septuagint. The Septuagint has 75. If you really want to geek out on that, I encourage you to go study it later because there's a lot of little nuggets in there that are helpful, but not for our purpose this morning. So as we continue here, remember, God has shown up to Jacob to affirm to him and to encourage him to go into Egypt with all that he has promising to be with him as they're making that final approach says there in verse 28 it says then he being Jacob sent Judah before him to Joseph to point out before him the way to Goshen and they came to the land of Goshen so Joseph made ready his chariot and went up to Goshen to meet his father Israel and he presented himself to him and he fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. And Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die, since I have seen your face, because you are still alive. An incredible reunion is transpiring there. The Bible is very silent in regards to the words, because really there would be no adequate words at this point between this son and this father. They see one another, they fall on each other's neck, lots of tears. Israel says this weird thing, now let me die since I have seen your face because you are still alive. And this is, this is his heart. He, is, he has been 
afraid his, for the last 20 years that he's going to go down to his grave in mourning for the loss of his son, Joseph. And now the exact opposite has just occurred. He is now looking into the face of his son that he thought was dead for 20 years. And again, the emotion, the impact of that. But looking back at what God told to Jacob, he said, Joseph will put his hand on your eyes. You know the movies when, when somebody dies and their eyes are open and you have that scene where they go and they close the eyes of the deceased? That's what's being talked about here. So God has told Jacob, your son Joseph is going to be there at your death. And at your death, Joseph is going to close your eyes. That tenderness, that relationship between father and son is the intimacy that's being described. So when Jacob finally sees his son, it's enough for Jacob. He's been revived. He's been restored. God, if now's the day for you to take me, I'm ready. And again, I mean, just it would be everything else in his life would probably be very dull in regards, in comparison to uh, the brilliance of the emotions that he's processing through. So in all of these relationships, in this, in this national identity where you have the nation of Israel coming into Egypt, there's different ways that we can sit in this passage. And, and we have to be, you know, all of them are relevant and true. One, we can sit at it, in it. And just the story that's being conveyed to us, here's the history, here's what's occurred, here's the relationships, here's the prayers, here's how God shows up. This is what we continue to do as we travel through God's word together. Another lens that you can place over this passage that I've already mentioned is looking at uh, Israel as a nation. And the imagery that this story is conveying to the nation of Israel is that all the promises that God has given to the nation of Israel, they will be fulfilled. So there is coming a day that Israel nationally is going to set their eyes on their Messiah, Jesus, when he returns. We are told in Romans, Israel nationally will be saved. There's a future context that we can sit in this, that when Jesus comes back to rule and reign as king in this earth for a thousand years, these pictures that we get from Old Testament prophets, this imagery that we get at the end of Revelation, that as he is ruling and reigning as king, Joseph symbolizes, continues to picture Jesus for the nation of Israel. As we're going to watch Jesus, Joseph here be this mediator for the nation as they're going to be blessed and provided for by their Messiah in this millennium reign and what the rest of the nations are going to be doing. Again, you can go sit and... Uh, Revelation 19 through the end of Revelation, the last four chapters, gives big context to all this. But what we're going to sit in, the lens that we're going to sit in this morning, is our present day relationship with Jesus Christ. And we're going to see how this imagery plays out. So picking this up in verse 31. So Joseph says to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and say to him, my brothers and those of my father's house who are in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for their occupation has been to feed livestock. And they have brought their flocks, their herds, and all they have. So it shall be when Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? That you shall say, your servant's occupation has been with livestock from our youth even till now. Both we and our fathers, that you may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. So what we're watching Joseph perform here for his family is this position of being a mediator. And this is who Jesus Christ is as the son of God. We're told in Hebrews chapter 7 that Jesus always lives to make intercession for me. His role his authority, his position, who he is as God the Son for all eternity, who he is as God the Son who became man, who died for our sins, who rose again from the dead and ascended to the right hand of our God, his Father. He sits in this position of mediation. 
And it's not that he brings God down to us. It's that he brings us as, our, as a mediator. He brings us into God's throne room. It's through Jesus Christ that we boldly approach the throne of grace. It's through this position of mediator that we have relationship with the God who has created us. That we are drawn in, that we are brought in. And not just Jesus as God the Son, but the Holy Spirit as God. Also Romans 8, 27 says that the Spirit makes intercession and for not just all of us, but for me individually, for you individually, the Spirit makes intercession for us according to the will of God. So this imagery that we have here, Joseph is standing in the gap, approaching the king Pharaoh as a mediator on behalf, representing, giving wisdom, giving instruction, giving, these are the words that you need to say. We have the Holy Spirit that is in us, t- telling us and teaching us, What we ought to pray when we don't even know the words that need to come out of our mouth. I don't know what to ask God in this circumstance. I need to be led. I need to be taught. I need the discernment. And here the Holy Spirit stands in that gap as an intercessor. Jesus is standing in that gap as an intercessor, as a mediator, bringing us into oneness and unity with his Father, the Holy One. And this is where we're going to start sitting in holiness because this idea that shepherds are an abomination to the Egyptians, in the Bible, Egypt is always a picture. It's always a type for the world. So here you have God's people, the nation of Israel, being sent by God to go and dwell in the world, in the land of Egypt, in Goshen. And this word Goshen, it means to draw near. But the idea is that they're still going, they may be dwelling in Egypt, but as they dwell in Egypt, as they live in Egypt, as they sojourn in Egypt, as they're waiting for that day when they stand face to face in the presence of God, they are to be separate. The world, Egypt, looks upon the nation of Israel as what? As an abomination. The one that we are told is the object of God's affection. God chose Abraham for a reason. The nation of Israel is to witness and to shine God into the world. As believers in Jesus Christ, Jesus tells us we are the light of the world and we're the light of the world because it's he that is in us and we are to shine and to reflect him into this world. But what often does the world do in return? As you're attempting to shine his love and his grace and his mercy and freedom from death, what does the world do? They look at believers in Jesus as though they're an abomination. In the New Testament, this idea of separation comes out multiple times. Paul in 2 Corinthians, the context of where Paul is addressing this, this is 2 Corinthians chapter 6. He is trying to restore a damaged relationship that he has with the Corinthian church. In this, he is saying, my heart is open to you. Your heart needs to be open to me in Christ. And he's giving this exhortation for them to be holy. For those of you, you know, the verse that's familiar, do not be unequally yoked. Don't, what, uh, what fellowship does darkness have with light? What fellowship and relationship does a believer have with an unbeliever? Don't be unequally yoked. Be holy. Be separate. Paul quotes Isaiah 52 in this passage. With, this is right before Isaiah 53, talking about Jesus Christ dying for the sins of the world. But this is what he quotes. He says, come out from among them and be separate says the Lord. So, in the church, often we will interpret this separateness that we need to be completely isolated in this world. We need to have our own versions of everything that the world has so that we cannot be tainted by this world, so that we don't have to rub shoulders with this world, so that we're not blemished by this world. But the reality and this, this separateness that God talks about, it's his holiness. Jesus tells us what the Old Testament tells us, the law tells us, 
you must be holy because your God, your Father, is holy. And for us, we know that that's impossible. That it's through faith in Jesus Christ that his righteousness is accounted to us. Positionally, in this world, you and I as believers in Jesus Christ, we are holy. And that's the, that's, the, that's the distinction. God is elevated. He is high. He is seated on a mountain. He is seated on a throne. Everything from God's position is always down. And that's what I was talking about in mediation. It's not that God comes down to us. It's that God brings us up to him and makes us one with him in his son. And again, we have, these future, we have this position now and these future promises of ultimate fulfillment. But as we live following Jesus in this world, we have this command to be separate, which it's not that we put ourselves in isolation from the world, but it's that as we're engaging this world, as we're shining Jesus, as we're attempting to be light, even though this world's going to look at you like an abomination, even this world is going to cause suffering in your life because of your relationship with Jesus, we are told that our hearts ought to be filled with rejoicing and with joy that we have privilege, the privilege to suffer shame for the name of Jesus. Have you ever suffered? I, don't to, I mean, it could be persecution, suffering, consequences, relationship damage, uh, career damage. Have you ever suffered anything because of your relationship with Jesus? Or have you ever known what it's felt like to be a coward? And we're going to talk about this world where I'm not going to say anything about Jesus because I don't want to suffer because of who he is. I don't want this person not to like me. I don't want this person to judge me. I don't want to fill in the blank. Suffering is going to come my way if I actually shine Jesus in this context. What is going on in the nation of Israel? They are witnessing, they are shining, they are reflecting the God to the world, the nation of Egypt. And this world knows in its limited fashion the God of Joseph. Joseph's testifying to that. But over time, there's going to become a Pharaoh that doesn't know the name of Joseph, doesn't care about Joseph, and is going to totally afflict the children of Israel to where they're crying out to God for deliverance. And we watch God bring them out, fulfilling the promise of God, this great deliverance from the world and all of its imagery and all of its beauty. But in this world, we are sojourning. This is a pilgrimage, this is a, tra this is a travel, this is a journey where we are in the world, but we're not to be of this world and a part of this world, fellowshipping with the world, fellowshipping with darkness, participating in that. So there's our separateness is that we're holy in Christ and we're pursuing holiness in our minds and our mouths and our behaviors and our actions so that we can shine him in this world, not just shine him to one another in our safe Christian clubs. Verse 47, or chapter 47, we're going to read down through, I think 11 or 12 here. It says, Then Joseph went and told Pharaoh and said, My father and my brothers, their flocks and their herds and all that they possess have come from the land of Canaan. And indeed, they are in the land of Goshen. And he took five men from among his brothers and presented them to Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh said to his brothers, what is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, your servants are shepherds, both we and also our fathers. And they said to Pharaoh, we have come to dwell in the land because your servants have no pasture for their flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. Now, therefore, please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh spoke to Joseph, saying, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Have your father and brothers dwell in the best of the land. Let them dwell in the land of Goshen. And if you know any competent men, any men of ability among them, then make them chief herdsmen over my livestock. Then Joseph brought in his father Jacob and set him before Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Jacob, how old are you? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, the days of the years of my pilgrimage 
are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers and the days of their pilgrimage. So Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from before Pharaoh. And Joseph situated his father and his, bro- and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt and the best of the land, uh, best of the land in the land of Ramesses. And Pharaoh, as Pharaoh had commanded, then Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with bread, with food, according to the number in their families. In context, pretty easy to see what's going on, but in this idea that Jesus, he is our mediator. He has kept us in this world, separated from others because he is the one that has called us out and and caused us to be holy and to be separate and and clean in this world as we shine and reflect him. In this land of Goshen, this idea of drawing near, we are told that... uh, where verse four, where it's please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. This is this idea of sojourning. It's the idea of being an alien in the land. You're dependent upon others in the land. This is a temporary circumstance and situation. When Joseph is, brings his father Jacob before Pharaoh, Jacob's words that come out of his mouth is this idea of my pilgrimage, this temporary dwelling, sojourning, my life. And here's, here's the idea of what's going on as we are in this world, as we are sojourning, traveling through on a pilgrimage. Verse 11 uses this idea, Joseph situates his family in Goshen. And this is the phrase that we've used before that it can be not good. So remember when Lot pitched his tent towards Sodom? Lot was dwelling in Sodom means that he wasn't just on a journey anymore. He was ready to sit down, build a house. This is my home. This is my community. This can be very dangerous in this world. Again, we are to be separate continually on this journey, but here it's using the same language. That in this world, there are plate. God causes us to sit down to put down roots into communities and to put down roots into cultures and where he has us, whether it's for all of our lives, whether it's for a narrow period of time, that again, as we are sojourning, he is the one that is with us, mediating on our behalf. He is the one who is providing for us. He is the one who is with us. He is sustaining us. He is giving us food, all the provisions that we need to dwell in holiness, in separateness in this world. Jesus is mediating that relationship. Again, this is the imagery that is going on. Now, I have this as the title for this morning's sermon. Here you have this new beginning that's going on in Jacob's life. And that this new beginning, it's not, he wasn't wholly dependent upon God before, but he's continuing to be wholly dependent. But now his circumstance and his situation, it's, it's new, it's different. God has just moved me. He has been moving me multiple times on this journey of life. This is the new place that he is causing me to sit down in and to put roots in. This is the place that he is providing for me in. And here's the temptation as we get comfortable in our circumstances, who do we start depending on? We stop depending on God and we start, start depending on our community, our resources, our job, our money, our comfort, our, our habits, whatever they may be. We, there's this drifting that starts to happen. The picture that the next verses provide is this illustration that there is nothing that God is going to allow us to hold on to independence other than him. And look at this imagery as we go through this, have this idea of holy dependence. And I ask this question, are you wholly dependent upon yourself? Are you wholly dependent upon others? Are you wholly dependent upon the state, the United States of America? That's gonna make sense here. Or are you truly wholly dependent on God? Because this makes... This means 
our dependence, what we depend on, means so much. I'm not going to say it means everything because that would be uh, a hyperbole. But it means so much in regards to the peace that God brings into our lives as he frees us from fear, as he wells up courage within us, as we remember and are reminded that he is continually with us, that he is the one leading us. Because remember, their context, this is a period of famine, and the famine is severe. In verse 13, it says, There was no bread in all the land, for the famine was very severe. So that land of Egypt and the land of Canaan, they languished. They were, they were weary and they were helpless because of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan for the grain which they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. So when the money failed in the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, give us bread for why should we die in your presence? For the money has failed. Then Joseph said, give your livestock. And I will give you bread for your livestock if the money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph. And Joseph gave them bread in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the cattle of the herds and for the donkeys. Thus he fed them with bread in exchange for all their livestock that year. Verse 18, when that year had ended, they came to him the next year and said to him, we will not hide from my Lord. Our money is gone. My Lord has our herds of livestock. There is nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our lands. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for bread, and we and our land will be servants of Pharaoh. Give us seed that we may live and not die, that the land may not be desolate. Then Joseph brought all, bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh. For every man of, of the Egyptians sold his field because the famine was severe upon them. So the land became Pharaoh's. And as for the people, he moved them into cities from one end of the borders of Egypt to the other end. Only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had rations allotted to them by Pharaoh, and they ate their rations, which Pharaoh gave to them. Therefore, they did not sell their lands. Then Joseph said to the people, Indeed, I have bought you and your land this day for Pharaoh. Look, here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land, and it shall come to pass. In the harvest, you shall give one-fifth to Pharaoh. Four-fifths shall be your own as seed for the field. And for your food, for those of your households, as food for your little ones. So they said, you have saved our lives. Let us find favor in the sight of my Lord, and we will be Pharaoh's servants. And Joseph made it law over the land of Egypt to this day that Pharaoh should have one-fifth, except for the land of the priests only, which did not become Pharaoh. So... In this context, we could sit in the civics lesson and look at what happens when the state owns stuff versus private ownership. We're not going to sit in that, but it would be a great discussion. Um, we can look and say, what, it, what in the world is Joseph doing here? He is, he is robbing the, the poor Egyptians blind in their suffering because they have nothing to eat. And he's, he's taking everything. Shouldn't he just graciously give to them? There's all different kinds of things that we can sit in. But this is the major picture that is going on. So the national picture that's going on, when Jesus comes back to rule and reign as king... Does Jesus own everything? Everything. The gold, the silver, the food, the lands, the animals, the people. When Jesus comes back as king, he owns it all personally. And all the nations of the world are going to bring their goods to the king. And the king is a righteous king. Jesus is a righteous king. Everybody's needs will be taken care of. In this time as he's ruling as king, if the people don't come and pay homage to Jesus as king, he will withhold rain from their lands so that there will be famines in those lands. This is the national picture that's going on. The personal picture and relationship that's going on, there's a process 
as we are dwelling in this world in sojourning and in pilgrimage, our God, as he is sanctifying us, he is slowly releasing our grip on different things in this world that we identify as ours. And where we're going to finish this morning, turn quickly to Matthew chapter 16. Because this is where this idea and relationship comes out in full flavor. But at first, it was just their money. I let go of this, and I was provided that, therefore now I'm okay. And the next year, some other hardship comes in, and now it's their livestock. And then they're okay and, and satisfied. And then the next year, it was their very lands and their very persons that are now servants to Pharaoh. They're taxed a fifth. They get to still keep four-fifths for themselves. But whose are they? In that context, they are the possession of the king of the world at this point. In its context, in Egypt, they are the possession of Pharaoh. So again, we have this imagery that as we look to Jesus, as you and I have been exposed to Jesus, this is who God is. This is who his son is. This is our God becoming a baby. This is what he did. This is what he taught. These are the miracles that, are perform that were performed. Here's the death that he died. Here's the, his life that he took back to himself. Here's his ascension. Here's the sending of his spirit. Here's what was going on in the early church as the gospel is being initially communicated to the Jews and then it's being communicated to the Gentiles and then it's going to the ends of the earth. Here's the process of sanctification. Not, and this is, this is something that all of us go through. Out of Jesus' mouth, in chapter 16 of Matthew, verse 24, Jesus says to his disciples, a disciple is a follower a disciple is a learner, a student of a master. So in this picture, in our relationship with Jesus as disciples, he is our master, he is our teacher, and we are listening to and applying the things that he teaches us. And he says, if anyone desires, if it's your wish, if it's your want, to come after Jesus. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. Whoever desires, wants to, wishes to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels. And then he will reward each according to his works. Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now, by way of picture, the account that we just read through in Genesis, we're watching the people not trying to hold on to their stuff so that their own souls could be saved in a worldly, fleshly fashion. Clearly, I need to let go of my cattle and my money and even my lands and even become somebody else's servant so that I and my family can continue to live. That was the cost that was going on in their life. Jesus tells us as our God, as our Savior, as our Messiah, as our Master, as our Lord, as our groom, as our God, as our all in all, everything that Jesus is. He's communicating to us, son, daughter, you have to let go of it all. You have to tell yourself 
no. You have to tell yourself to let go of all that you think that you are, all that you think that you've accomplished, all that you think is going to bring you satisfaction, delight, joy, life, relationship, joy. This is spouse, this is children, this is money, this is career, this is everything. This is the demand of our Savior. Now, does that cause you fear? Causes me some fear, causes me some trembling, makes me feel like a pansy toddler in the corner occasionally, like, Blake, where's your courage? I've, I've had those emotions where I'm, God, don't you care? I, I say this one all the time because I remember saying this to God, reading it in the Gospels. The disciples are in the boat and Jesus is happily asleep. And they think that they're going to drown because of the storm. They wake him up. Don't you care that we're going to die? And Jesus' question to them, where's your faith? In that moment, courage had been sucked out of them because of what they were very real. I mean, these were fishermen. This is like no joke of a storm. They were very possibly going to die in this circumstance. But they forgot who was with him. They forgot his power. They forgot his provision. They forgot his love. They forgot his command. They forgot his care. Their attention was on their own life, their own soul. And how are we going to preserve this? How are we going to preserve what we're going to do? How are we going to preserve, preserve you as the Messiah so that you can go kick Rome's butt and make yourself king now so that Israel can not be subject to Rome anymore? I mean, these are all the things that they're going through. What are, what are all the thoughts that run through your mind when your life doesn't look the way that you liked it to? When your life doesn't line up with the commands and the instructions that God has given to you? When you are being sent in a direction, when God is sending you right into the world to go and be light and you don't want to go there because it's scary. People's lives are a mess. And people may come to Jesus like that and the moment that they're saved, the moment that they cry out to him for salvation and deliverance, he comes and dwells in them. He comes and takes up residence. He comes and floods their soul with light and with love. And he begins that process of transformation that he's done in each one of us. How long has your transformation taken? I've been walking with Jesus for 20 years. And boy, has he changed me. But boy, I'm not where I want to be yet. And walking alongside of other human beings hurts. It's painful. It's scary. If I don't think God is leading me, if I don't think God is with me, if I don't think he cares. But when I have this revelation, when I know, I know that God has called my name. I know that where I am today in life is at his direction. Much of what I do day in and day out causes me and my personality and my temperament a lot of trembling because I feel inadequate in so many different areas of life. So many people's lives that I want to come rushing into and save and help and just all, all you got to do is follow Jesus. It's hard and you agonize. We're praying for a young man this morning. Jesus doesn't come in and flood his soul with his light. The destruction this world has already done in that young man's soul. If that young man chooses to hold on, Jesus tells us he will lose his life. But in all the damage that's occurred in his life, if he lets go and he takes up courage in who God is and he sits at his feet every single day for direction, for knowledge about who he is, for to be reminded. 
as that young man and as you and I, as we travel in this life, all of a sudden, the fear is gone. And in that place is God's perfect love and his peace that he brings in. As we talk about the cost of discipleship, the cost is everything. And when you hold up your hand and when you sing with your voice that you've surrendered all, do any of you feel like liars? Do any of you know that there's other things to let go of? And what's that as we step back into worship? What's that thing right now for you? What's God asking you to release your grip on? You've already taken those steps of, God, I trust you, I believe in you, I hope in you, I'm yours, you are mine. But you've come up to a line in the walk with Jesus where you think that if you cross that line, a bunch of pain, suffering, all those fears, worries are going to come flooding into your life if you do what God is directing you to do. Have you ever sat to those crossroads before? Are you sitting in one of those crossroads right now where you are hearing God saying, draw near, come to Goshen, draw near to me. Don't fear. I am with you. I will go with you and I will bring you home. Go, cross over, step out, not in your flesh, not in your strength, but in his power, according to his will, because he is the one interceding on your behalf. Anything that God commands you to do is for your good. Do you believe that? I'm serious. Like, do you believe that? Let go of your life for my namesake, for Jesus' name's sake. Let go. And he will give you abundant, joy-filled, holy, separate, shining, glorious life because of who he is. Amen? Worship team, come on up. Heavenly Father, we are asking you. We are asking you for that boldness, for that courage, for that peace. To do that next thing that you're leading us and instructing us to do. For some people in this room, Lord... They just don't trust you. They don't think that you are who you say that they are, that you are. They think, Lord, that you're mean, that you want to cause pain, that you want to cause suffering. Lord, I'm asking that those lies would flee from their minds and their hearts as they turn to you in courage. And Lord, not the courage that we can muster up in our flesh, but the courage that comes from who you are. Lord, that they let go. There is so much worry in this room. There's anxiety in people's lives. There is stress, there's, there's, there's the circumstances of life that they don't like. There's relationships that are just constant tension. There's hatred in this room, there's bitterness in this room. There's sin and immorality in this room. There's people who are looking to the state to be their savior. There's people who are looking to money to be their savior. There's people who are looking to something else as their God other than you. And they hear you, Lord. 
They even believe the words, those words that we've covered this morning. I know that if I only just let go and if I just do what Jesus tells me to do, that it's right, then it's good, that it'll bring glory to him and he'll be with me. He will see me through to the end, to his presence for all eternity. I know that. But God, I'm afraid. So I need you to speak my name. I need to hear your voice. I need you to tell me what to do, Lord. I don't want to turn in the wrong direction, but I only want to follow Jesus. God, I trust that you are faithful. And I trust that if you don't speak to me right now in this moment or in this day, that your voice will come tomorrow. It'll come the day after. Because Lord, if you're not speaking to me today, it's because it's for my good. And if you speak to me today, Lord, it's for my good, and for your glory. We worship you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.